Hello and welcome to another episode of interest.co.nz's Of Interest podcast. I'm Gareth Vaughan. My guest today is the University of Auckland's Tava Olsen, and the topic is the supply chain. Tava's well-placed to talk about this as she's Professor of Operations and Supply Chain Management and Director of the Centre for Supply Chain Management at the University of Auckland Business School. Welcome, Tava, and thank you for joining us. Supply chains obviously have, uh, they're, they're one of those things really that a lot of us don't really think about until something goes wrong. And you know, we take them for granted, I guess, that we, we order something and it turns up when we want it to turn up or when we expect it to turn up. Now, of course, the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic globally changed things quite dramatically and things certainly did go wrong. COVID's highlighted the fragility of global supply chains and obviously for a trade-dependent country at the bottom of the world, with very long lead times, like New Zealand, this has been a big deal and continues to be a big deal. I can remember starting to hear about COVID-related supply chain problems in probably about October 2020, which was then in the context of, of delays and stuff arriving from overseas for Christmas, which people were beginning to talk about. So to kick us off, Tava, I was just wondering if you could explain just how the pandemic messed up global supply chains. Sure, and uh, very nice to be here. So. Uh Supply chains don't do well with lumps, uncertainty, you know, delays. They work best when they're all flowing smoothly, uh, you know, just product flowing from one end to the other, uh, like water. That's that's the ideal from a supply chain perspective. And what the pandemic did was, of course, mess that all up. So. Uh, there were changes in demand patterns and there were changes in supply patterns. And together, that just made a very, very lumpy supply chain that, that had major issues. So um, as a supply chain academic, I was actually starting to talk about supply chain issues well before the October because, you know, we were looking at our supermarkets and they were out of flour, for example, and you know, the, the whole toilet paper around the world made big news, you know, and it's not surprising because that's a product that usually has very nice, smooth, constant demand. And so you add in some bumps and it doesn't go well. Absolutely. One of the things I remember hearing about was that obviously when the, the world went into lockdowns, um, especially in, in the US being the biggest economy in the world, people's spending patterns changed. And, and instead of going out to restaurants or bars or cafes and spending money. They were staying at home and ordering things off the internet. So this messed up the flow of containers between the US and China in particular, obviously the world's two biggest economies, and then that flowed on to the rest of us. Was that a big part of, I guess, what influenced the problems even in New Zealand? Yes, and so there was more ordering online, but there was also more uh, differences in what we consume. So for example, we ran out of flour, but we didn't actually run out of flour. What we ran out of was the small bags to pack flour in. And it actually took a while to produce those bags again. That's why you saw those big, you know, five kilo bags in the supermarkets, because there's plenty of flour and plenty of big bags that would usually be being used by bakeries, but the bakeries were closed. So, and people were trying to home bake. So we ran out of the bags. So that's just one example of what went wrong in terms of that supply chain. Yeah, I can remember in our neighbourhood there was one dairy that had flour and so my <laughs> wife made a beeline there one day with one of our kids. Yeah, yeah. it was a strange time. Um, there, there were, um, obviously, there were stories too in 2020 and again last year of some of our bigger exporters chartering their own ships to keep their products flowing overseas. Um, I'm guessing 
times were probably even tougher for our smaller companies because they wouldn't have had the scale or the scope to, to actually do that. So how have they been coping through this? Uh, not well. So obviously they don't get very high priority in terms of shipping capacity. And so what they've learned to do is just have even longer lead time. So there's a lot of extra stock being held at various points in the supply chain just because they can't guarantee that anymore that they'll get it you know, six weeks after they order it, for example. So uh, that adds cost, right? It adds cost because you're tying up your capital in the inventory that's just sitting there, not being sold. Yeah, and that, that cost issue is an interesting one because obviously pre-COVID, there was, everyone used to talk about the, the just-in-time model, right? So keeping um, low levels of inventory and you just, you know, get things in when you needed them and wanted yeah. them. And that's obviously changed, I guess, the balance between cost and, and service and the business continuity being more important, perhaps, than, than costs. Um, is this a permanent change, do you think, that's, that's happening? Or is this going to just, I mean, there, there's a lot of talk now about onshoring manufacturing, particularly in the US, because Shanghai is obviously still having lockdowns and it's messing up shipping still. Mm. Is this is this something that's going to be permanent? I think there are some permanent uh, changes, but what I find quite funny is when I started my career, we talked about just in time and then it got a bad name. And then we talked a lot about lean. And then now we're back to talking about just in time, which is really the heart of lean. Lean is good because you keep the costs down, right? So again, that that visualization of things flowing like water, not a lot of bumps, not a lot of extra inventory. That's the low cost way to produce. It's just not resilient. So what I think has changed is this awareness that there is a trade-off, right? You can hold extra inventory, be more resilient, be more responsive, or you can hold lower inventory, less cost, but it's more dangerous because you you know those risks, those shocks, you can't absorb. Yeah, I mean, there's scope for, for more to go wrong, I guess, isn't there? There, absolutely. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, um, we, I think the figure I've seen is 99% of the volume of our exports travel by sea. I, th I thought it was interesting during the, the well, I say during the pandemic as if it's gone, obviously, <laughs> we, we still have plenty of COVID with us. Um, but the, the government obviously stumped up quite a lot of money, public money, to keep air freight moving. Um, but they didn't do this with sea freight. Was that perhaps surprising? Well, the government generally doesn't try and interfere with private enterprise. So, I, you know, we, as you already mentioned, we saw these companies that were chartering their own vessels. So I think even though it was painful, it, the sea freight was still limping along. So I don't think it's that surprising that government didn't jump in and, and try and fix it. Whereas the, whereas the air freight, I mean, we weren't flying people around, which meant that all those holds that usually terrible carry goods weren't going. So, I mean, the decrease in capacity in air freight over COVID was just, you know, huge. Yeah. I wonder, though, with, with those smaller companies, the smaller New Zealand exporters, mm -hmm. um, obviously it was really tough for them. We do have our national airline in Air New Zealand. Has there been any discussion of perhaps whether we should have a national shipping line? Not that I've heard. Doesn't mean it doesn't, and not that it means it's not worth discussing. Because if you want resilience, if you want to be able to absorb 
shocks, etc., then probably there's a role for government because you can't really expect companies to just carry all that extra costs on their books, particularly if it's extra costs for society rather than extra costs for their own their own business. So there, there is a role. Um, it's It might be an interesting conversation to have. You, I, I read an article that your colleague um, David Robb uh, wrote a, a few months ago that I thought was really interesting. In this, he, he talked one of the things he talked about in it was uh, what Switzerland does in terms of maintaining a system of compulsory stocks of goods through a public-private partnership. I, I'm just wondering whether maybe that's something that New Zealand ought to be looking at. Obviously, what we would hold would differ to what Switzerland holds, but is that something that we could perhaps be looking at doing? We absolutely need to be looking at that. So I don't think anybody has done the stock take of suppose there was war and our borders closed, what are we going to run out of that's going to be critical supplies and how fast will we run out of it? You know, And those would be the places that it would be a role of government to say, okay, I'm not okay with New Zealand having no... So, for example, we've closed down Marsden Point. You know, we don't carry a lot of fuel reserves. Um, we have the options we have are options to buy fuel at the current global market price. So that's not giving us a lot of benefit. Uh, you know, we hold it for because of international agreements. But, you know, we really need to take a good hard look of, you know, what if our borders actually closed? Because, yes, hopefully it's not going to happen. But it is something that could happen. And I'm not convinced anyone's taken a good hard look at, you know, where are those critical needs that we really should be thinking about. Yeah, I mean, fuel is an obvious one you mentioned, but I, I was interested to, to read a bit further on this and some of the, the things at risk in, 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 in food areas, for example, extend to things like sugar, wheat, maize, rice, and coffee. I mean, we don't want to run out of coffee, <laughs> do we? So th there's a lot of things we could bring into this discussion. Yes, although I think we don't want to run out of coffee, but we can live without coffee, you know. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but it would be painful, but it's, yeah. you know, it's not on the same level as fuel and medical sure. supplies, right? So yeah. I'm not going to start suggesting the government has their coffee reserves for... Because yeah. that, that was one of the, the things, too, in the early days of the pandemic, medical supplies, PPE, mm. you know, mm. personal protective equipment. Is, is I, I have been reading about this this push to to, to, to onshore or reshore um, in the US with multinationals that were looking at China now building new factories in the States. We're obviously a much smaller economy, but is there any evidence of that going on in New Zealand, that people that maybe were looking at setting up overseas are, are staying here? Is our market just too small for them to do that? I think we're too small. I mean, so most of what I've seen is just carrying the extra inventories, but still offshoring. But uh, it probably would take government intervention uh, in terms of subsidising setting up some of those very high capital uh, equipment. And you'd want to be careful about that, obviously. Yeah. Now, an interesting thing that is going on against this backdrop is the Ministry of Transport looking at developing what it describes as New Zealand's first ever comprehensive freight and supply chain strategy. They released an issues paper recently, which I'm sure you're, you're familiar with, in it, the Minister of Transport, Michael Wood, said the government is taking action to future-proof our supply chain, limiting the impact of the next global shock on our businesses across the country. This is a very um, sort of uh, ambitious idea. Um, is, is a comprehensive national freight and supply chain strategy a good idea, and, and what would we need from it? 
so first let me say I've read the document. I think they've done an excellent job of outlining the background and all the issues and definitely recommend reading it. But having said that, I don't think a national supply chain strategy makes much sense. Um, a freight strategy, maybe, quite possibly. Uh, but, you know, in our very first class on supply chain, what we teach is that you don't have one supply chain strategy. You have to match your supply chain strategy to the type of product. So, you know, Fisher and Paykel Healthcare exporting their high-tech light masks are going to need a completely different supply chain than Fonterra exporting their low-value, heavy milk powder bags. You know, those are those are two fundamentally different supply chain types. And if you look at what you're going to emphasize, you know, you're going to emphasize responsiveness on, on for Fisher and Michael Healthcare, and you're going to emphasize minimizing cost for the Fonterra milk powder. So, you know, the other issue I have with their proposed strategy is they don't seem to recognize that. So they want productivity or efficiency, and they want responsiveness or resilience and you know yes we both we want both of those but where's that trade-off do we want which one do we want to emphasize well it depends on what product we're actually thinking about so I think coming up with a country strategy for supply chain um, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense and coming up with a country strategy for freight thinking about the modes we want to use and whether we want to subsidize rail more or roads more or coastal shipping more that makes a lot of sense so so yes we should be thinking a lot more in terms of our strategic planning for our country's freight networks you know your question on whether that we the government should be subsidizing a national uh, sea freight yeah, I don't know but let's let's have that conversation. Um, but I think to bring it up to supply chain, yeah, it's how can we have a national supply chain strategy? Isn't there, I mean, I guess coming back to those smaller businesses, though, I, I wonder, is there not any scope for some sort of national, you know, strategy to help out them? Because I guess if they, I mean, I take your point about different industries and different yeah. different needs, et cetera. But if you're a small New Zealand company who's exporting to, say, China, if you pull your resources together with other small New Zealand companies, doesn't that give you a bit more market power with the, I guess, with the container shipping lines who, who from all reports I see, are, are rotting people at the moment <laughs> with the prices they're charging? Yes, but I wouldn't call that a national supply chain strategy. I mean, we definitely should be thinking around, you know, what, what can we do to make things more efficient, more effective, to increase collaboration. We're not actually very good as a country as with collaboration. Uh, we have far too many empty trucks driving around our roads because, you know, people are not actually collaborating on those trips. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the points on that that I've I've read is that obviously a lot of um, imports come into Auckland mm. and then get trucked off around the country and then 40% of those trucks come back to Auckland empty, for example. So uh, how can we address an issue like that? Well, there's certainly been attempts to address it. So, for example, that is Coda's business model. I mean, Coda is largely owned by Fonterra um, and not going to remember who else, but, uh, you know, their business model is to try and fill up those back legs. Um, and there have been other startups trying to do that. And then I think comes back to your question of, is there a role 
to tip the scales a little bit more in in favor of those sort of collaborations, maybe. But I do think it also comes down to our role as universities, is which is just sort of educating people on the importance uh, of collaboration and the possibility of creating win-wins. It doesn't have to be win-losers, you know. If, if, if I can put my stuff on your truck going the other way, then it's lower cost for me, it's lower cost for you. We just have to figure out those coordination me- mechanisms. So it really is teaching people about win-wins are possible. You do say that, that uh, a national freight strategy is a good mm. idea, and that's obviously part of what the Ministry of Transport is looking at. Yeah, what do we need on that? On that, I mean, one of the ideas that comes up regularly is you know people say we have too many ports, for example, too many import export ports mm. around the country. We should move to what is referred to as a hub and spoke model, where we have one or two ports where international ships come into. Bigger ships could come in if it was, you know, Tauranga, for example. Um, and then then we have a sort of feeder around the country, whether it be coastal shipping, trucking, mm. train, rail, or a combination of all of them, I guess. Um, is that, I mean, it, it seems to me that this idea has been around for, for as long as I can remember. Um, ports are often owned by local government. There's quite parochial ownership, exactly. so it never seems to change. But is that, is that something we should be really trying to do at a national level? It's something we should be thinking about, and I think you've hit the nail on the head in terms of it is the local government control that's preventing sort of any sort of efficiencies shaking out. I mean, if they were all in private ownership, which is not what I'm advocating, but if they were, you'd see one port buying the other port and you'd get that consolidation happening pretty quickly if it was actually a free market. Um, So... Yeah, you could be doing it with the free market, you could be doing it with government central control, but with local control, it's just not going to happen. So one of those two choices you could be making, but the current local control, just there's no incentive to to try and consolidate. You just do what's best for Auckland, uh, you know, and, and yeah, that's what Auckland local government needs to be thinking about. But is that really what the country should be doing in terms of our ports? Well, that's... That's a different question, right? And obviously, that debate sparks up every now and again, but Mm. nothing, nothing seems to happen. I mean, if COVID isn't a a circuit breaker for this, is there anything else that might be? Goodness, Uh, it's it's really you would have to change the ownership model, and then it would be government that would have to change the ownership model. Uh, So I would hope they would take a good hard look at it before they actually did that change. Um, And that's, you know, that's one of the potentials for this freight study is hopefully they can actually start looking at some of those really difficult but possible mechanisms. One of the themes that comes through that Ministry um, of Transport um, paper quite strongly is climate change and obviously mitigating it. Um, talks about the development of a circular economy, which is obviously one that that produces less waste, more use of data and technology, need for investment, I mean, all of of these things. Um, How, I guess, climate change, everything that the government is doing and talking about at the moment is climate change features prominently in there and will continue to do so. What can, I guess, the, the freight industry, supply chain participants do on that front? to, I guess, mitigate climate change because we, we still want to send our exports overseas and mm. we still want to import things from overseas. So 
it's there's there's a carbon footprint there for some time to come, I imagine. Yes, although the carbon footprint of putting things on boats is actually relatively low. Um, putting things on planes, obviously, that's quite high. Uh, but uh, the, there was a study a while ago done by um, academics from Lincoln, I think it was, that looked at the food miles and actually showed that uh, growing sheep here, putting them in refrigerated containers and sending to the UK ended up with lower carbon emissions than having to keep the sheep warm all winter in these you know, large barns that, that require huge amounts of heating that was done through coal. So, you know, it's, it's not a simple equation in terms of uh, emissions, but... I think just measuring it, and that's you know that's where we are getting to, is is if we at least measure it, we can know where the biggest bang for our buck is. And then we do see things like um, the ports of Auckland experimenting with their electric tug and their hydrogen that they're experimenting with. So I think there's definitely space for a bit more experimentation um, and just seeing what's actually going to work in New Zealand. There's also quite a bit of talk about coastal shipping that's that's re-emerged in recent years. And I see recently Maersk announced that they're launching a, a coastal shipping service around New Zealand. I guess obviously in the early days of New Zealand, um, well, certainly of the early European period, but even the, the Māori period, ships, walkers were a way of transporting ourselves around our island nation. Um, it does seem to make sense to use coastal shipping more. Um, what, what do you think is going to happen with coastal shipping in the next few years? So the the thing that holds back coastal shipping is all the extra handling. So you have to take those containers off and on and off and on, and, and you're in these fairly constrained um, ports. And um, as we go towards more automation, <laughs> Uh, will those costs come down? But of course, Auckland Ports just backed away from its big automation project. So I'm not. Sh- we're not going to be seeing that in the next, you know, five, ten years probably. But eventually, obviously, you know, we'll be at a point where automation can just, you know, pick up a container, put it down, load it on the electric ship. That's or maybe it's hydrogen. I don't know. But the low emissions coastal ship. So yes, we're going to get more coastal shipping because it's it is quite a um, effective way of getting things around. There aren't a lot of hills in the in the, in the ocean, right? But it's really those handling costs that have made it uh, not used as much these days versus, you know, 100 years ago where labour was super cheap, so, you, yeah. you know, the handling costs were much less. You mentioned automation there. I mean, how much is automation and well, other forms of technology going to change supply chains in coming years, do you think? I think it's going to have huge changes. So already we're seeing overseas, um, you know, those little robot things that are doing deliveries on sidewalks. We're not seeing those in New Zealand. But, you know, as you get more and more automation able to pick things up and deliver them and drop them off, then, again, those those costs of transport go down um, and ideally go down and are with, renewable electricity, so you're not also paying all the emissions costs. But uh, yeah, no, we things, the cost, the cost of transport for both people and goods is going to go down, particularly when we have driverless cars. Just, just think of what you could get done in your car if you weren't actually driving it, right? So again, those costs go down. So we will see more, right? So we'll people might start living even further distances away, which is a challenge for our policymakers because you probably don't want 
huge numbers of people commuting long distances. And and I mean, I guess in, in supply chain and freight, will we have driverless trucks? Yes, and in fact, there's the, I mean, they already have them in the US uh, doing some of those long haul. I mean, it's not 100% driverless, but it's, you know, uh, changing the, the freight industry and it's, it's helping to mitigate the challenge they have in a shortage of drivers. So, uh, yes, eventually we're going to be at a point that, that you just send things off and they get delivered. To wrap up, I think it would be quite interesting to, to, to ask you where you would like to see New Zealand's supply chain supply chains uh, <laughs> and 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 yes. this freight strategy you talk about where would you like to see things in i don't know 5 years or so from now i would like to see new zealand businesses have a thorough understanding of their supply chains the trade-offs and making some of these decisions deliberately rather than reactively so yes if you're going to carry more stock good but know why you're doing it and know you know know the trade-offs around there so um, definitely a call to New Zealand businesses to upskill in terms of their supply chain knowledge, hire some of our supply chain graduates, please. Uh, but also I would like government to actually have taken this good hard look at the vulnerabilities of New Zealand supply chains and, you know, are there places they need to be investing because they probably are. Yeah, just on those two points, distance and investment, I mean, what are the key issues that distance causes and what are the key areas that could use investment in your, in your view? So distance causes the issue of a not, your supply chain is less resilient and less responsive. So that's why we see people putting things on planes because it gets there so much faster. So you can react to changes in customer demand um, or you can make up for delayed supply. Uh, so distance is a big challenge for New Zealand supply chains. And I think in terms of businesses, they can be thinking about, you know, what what can I do to mitigate that? So um, if I'm an IT business, I don't have the tyranny of, of distance, right? Or much less, or you know, maybe some people costs, but basically you don't have the tyranny of distance. So thinking about things that are light or weightless is really, I think, where New Zealand can compete more effectively than things that are heavy and are going to take a while to get there on a boat. And what areas in particular could use some investment? As you can probably tell, I am I am a believer in the free market. So I, I'm not a big fan of government picking winners. Um, I think where we really need investment, and again, I'm biased because I'm an academic, is in much more R&D. I think we really need to be investing in our research in, um, ecosystem, in our innovation ecosystem, many more grants for collaborations between startups and uh, academia. I mean, really, let's get this innovation thing rocking. Um, that's where I would like to see. Um, but of course, that's coming from my own biased perspective as an academic. Well, fair enough. Thanks a lot, Tava. That's Tava Olson, who is Professor of Operations and Supply Chain Management and Director of the Centre for Supply Chain Management at the University of Auckland Business School. And I'm Gareth Vaughan, and that's been another episode of interest.co.nz's Of Interest podcast.